Here's what it says in the first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There are at least four truths here that help us to understand who we are and what our mission is as creatures, as human beings, all of which have come under attack in the modern world. We're told that we're made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God, and that has been robustly attacked, especially in our public educational institutions by Darwinian evolution that would say, no, you are not made in the image and likeness of God. You are no different than the creatures you just visited at the local zoo. You were conceived, you live your life, and eventually you die. Secondly, we're told that we have dominion, that we, as human beings, are God's stewards of creation, that we have a stewardship over the world, that we represent his rightful rule over creation, that has come into attack by statists who would say, nope, we're going to consolidate power in government. Government decides who can do what, who can go where, who can say what, who can't say what, etc. Third, we're told that we are made male and female. And of course, we know this, intuitively we know this, but we now have bills that have been passed through our parliamentary system and are approved by our Senate that would say, bills like C4, that that's no longer objective truth. That you can be whatever gender you want. So bills like Bill C4 and of course proponents of these radical sexual re-education and indoctrination agendas have attacked that biblical truth which is included in the first chapter of Genesis. We're also told to be fruitful and multiply, and of course the abortion industry is daily attacking that, whereby children can still be put to death even as multiple other surgeries are canceled in the name of public health. So here's the facts. You don't have to have a degree in apologetics or cultural theology to acknowledge and to observe that there is a full-out attack being waged against creational norms, a full-out attack. It's no longer a matter of where there's groups over here that have differences of opinion than you biblical Christians. We now have legislation that makes aspects of biblical truth illegal to propagate in a counseling session or in a therapy session or in conversations with others and potentially even in sermons like this one. In Canada, Bill C-4, which was passed in Parliament on December 1st and became law January the 7th of this year, would refer to these things as myths. 
So we're going to preach on this subject today. And normally, I like to spend more time in the Bible, directly expositing and exegeting various passages, than I do speaking about bills that have been passed by Parliament. But it's important for us to actually understand what Bill C-4 is and what it says. I want to expose it. Some of you, I'm sure, have read it. Most of you have probably just heard about it. So I want to expose Bill C-4. And as I was reading it and deliberating upon it this week, I thought to myself, actually, this reads a lot like a religious text, because it is. So really what I'm going to do is I'm going to exegete it, <laughs> because it's a religious text. You'll see the ideological, the moral, the authority claims that are made in this text. For example, this bill, Bill C-4, which is called a conversion therapy bill, when you think of conversion therapy, you might think of somebody who's non-heterosexual having jumper cables hooked up to them and being electrocuted or zapped so that they would be forced to change their sexual orientation. But that's not what the bill's about at all. We, we of course, would find that reprehensible. But that doesn't happen in Canada and hasn't for decades. Bill C-4 doesn't even present conversion therapy as an act of torture. It doesn't even address it that way. Here's how Bill C-4 describes and defines conversion therapy. It refers to it, on threat of prison, by the way, if you violate it, as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. It doesn't say, well, we want to protect people from abuse. We want to protect people from physical coercion. It doesn't even address that. It defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to what? To heterosexual. So that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. By the way, folks, if you're going to be keen on what's going on in culture, you need to understand the power of language. You need to understand the power of definitions. The person that controls the definitions controls the narrative. And we've seen in our culture that instead of people of faith, people who believe in God's law, people that believe in objective reality, having a say in the definition of words, the world has created a whole new vocabulary. I'll just give you a, an example unrelated to this subject, but it is a fascinating example. If you go online to the Merriam-Webster dictionary and you type in the word anti-vaxxer, that's pretty common today, right? So anti-vaxxer, you would think, because historically an anti-vaxxer just two years ago was a person that just didn't want to get vaccinated. But that's not what the definition says. It says a person that opposes vaccinations or who opposes the regulations governing vaccinations. So you can be a vaccinated anti-vaxxer because they've changed the definition, they've expanded the definition. So that's an example. The person that controls the definitions controls the narrative. And you'll note the careful language of this bill. So that it conforms to the sex assigned 
to the person at birth. Is that how it works? The mom's pushing hard. She's going through all kinds of pain. The baby comes out, and there it is on the table. Do we walk up and say, hmm, uh, I'm going to assign this child maleness. Or I'm going to assign this child genderlessness. Or I'm going to assign this child femaleness. No. I mean, let's, let's get real. You look at the child. If the child has a penis, it's a male. If the child has a vagina, it's a female. Nobody assigns your sex. It's intrinsic to who you are. We acknowledge it. We recognize it. We identify the child by their external genitalia. That's how it works. That's how we've always done it since the beginning of time. But if you control the language and change the definitions, because that's objective, and you subjectify the language, you subjectify the notion of gender, then you can push your agenda forward. And by the way, this is why this notion of sex being assigned at birth comes up repeatedly in this text. Or, or, or in this, it is kind of a text, it's a religious text, but in this bill. So let me reread that last statement. So that, it assigned, so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, and it goes on to say, to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. So what's conversion therapy? Trying to repress or reduce non-heterosexual, so that would be homosexual, attraction, or sexual behavior. What do you mean sexual behavior? It's, it's not, there's, there's no limits put on it. So, I'm not entirely sure what the thinking was in this very sloppily worded bill. But if the bill says that any practice, treatment, or service, jumping forward, that represses, reduces, jumping forward, sexual behavior, that includes pedophilia, that includes bestiality, that includes incest. There's no limits to it. Now, again, if Bill C4 and conversion therapy meant hooking up wires to people and torturing them to become heterosexual, well, we'd be concerned about that as well. Because that's not the way of Jesus, and it's certainly not the way of the apostles in dealing with sexual sin. But that's not what Bill C4 is. Bill C4 is a religious bill. It's a religious bill with the high priest, the prime minister, and a priesthood, the members of parliament that support his agenda, and lots of deacons, the courts, the police officers, that will be pushed toward enforcing this religious bill. It's a religious bill because it makes moral claims. In doing so, not only does it make moral claims, it denounces Judeo-Christian moral claims. In fact, it goes so far as to refer to them flat out as myths. Let me read on. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about human, about sexual orientation gender identity, and gender expression. 
oh, so Bill C4 is trying to stop myths, myths about human sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. What kind of myths are they talking about? Well, the bill doesn't leave us hanging. Here's what it says these myths are, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, meaning the sex assigned to you at birth, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred. Again, the word preferred is a lot like the word assigned. It subjectifies your gender. It's like, well, you just, what, what gender do you prefer? Um, do I get to make that choice? We would have always said no. <laughs> You're a male. You don't choose your gender. You might choose your occupation, what country you want to live in, what language you want to speak, but you are a male or you are a female. So we have lots of subjective language here. And then it goes on to read, over other sexual orientations, plural, gender identities, plural, and gender expression. So again, that would include in terms of counseling and therapy, homosexuality, transsexuality, bestiality, incest, and pedophilia. It is true that incest, pedophilia, and bestiality are still banned by law. That's true. Whereas homosexuality and transsexuality aren't. So some of the actions that one might participate in are banned by law. But what C, why C4 is incredibly dangerous is it removes all moral boundaries from your orientation. So now it's saying, well, you, you can't be, in terms of your actions, a pedophile, but you can be a pedophile in terms of your orientation, in terms of your desire. You can't have sex with animals, but it's okay to desire it. And in fact, no one else should ever speak out against that. No one else should try to convince you that your sexual orientation is wrong. Or if you have a desire to be with your sister, well, you're not supposed to do that because that's, that's, that's illegal, but it's no longer immoral, according to Bill C-4. Well, you know how this works. Once you convince a culture that all orientations are to be honored, well, it's only going to take one person to put up their hand and say, well, then, if I'm allowed to have these thoughts and feelings and desires, why do we have laws in place banning me from acting out? We've seen this with homosexuality. Back in the 1960s, sodomy was illegal in Canada. It's no longer illegal. And it's no longer illegal because folks are able to convince society that it's not immoral. So why would you forbid someone from participating in an activity that is morally acceptable? I mean, re read, the, read the trajectory here. So Bill C-4 really is a bill that is filled with a language of lies. When it speaks of being assigned at birth rather than your biological sex, which again you can observe by observing a child's biology. You look at a boy, it's clear he's a boy. You look at a girl, it's clear she's a girl. But by using language like assigned or preferred, again it subjectifies sexuality. 
contrary to biology, which is super weird because people always appeal to science, science, science as the ultimate truth, but it, 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 it subjectifies it. And, and get this, from a pastoral perspective, this is where it becomes very concerning and heartbreaking when you're dealing with people who may have engaged in certain sexual sins and have certain sexual desires, and they come to their pastor or a teenager comes to their parent or they come to the Christian school teacher and they say, these are my desires, I don't want to live this way anymore, can you please help me? I want to conform to God's standards and God's word. Sorry, by law I'm not allowed to say anything. So you're literally cutting people off that desire to change, that want to conform their lives to God's creational norms from even seeking help. This is how absurd and draconian this bill is. Well, what we want to do now, having parsed it, is to try to speak some biblical truth into the lies that Bill C-4 propagates. So let's offer some biblical correction to Bill C-4 and the ideology behind it. And I acknowledge that whenever we preach passages of Scripture that call us out for our behavior, that if we are humble, we're, we're more likely to receive it, but if we're prideful, we're more likely to resist it. So there, there might be some resistance even in this room today, or with some of our viewers that will view this online later. But we always need to remember, God is good, and what God says is, is good is best for us. We are blessed when we obey our Creator and His laws and norms for our lives. So there's much that we could speak about when it comes to human sexuality. We could preach multiple sermons on it. But just some foundational truths. The first being that biblical Christianity confronts sin but offers grace. Biblical Christianity confronts sin but it also offers grace. Why do I want to emphasize that today? Because what Bill C4 is attempting to do is to stop people of faith from confronting sin. And it also wants to frame us up as graceless, merciless, mean, ghoulish, horrible, and even criminal people for teaching and preaching the truth of God's word. But when we explore God's word, we discover that God's word encourages us and models for us the confrontation of sin. In order that a person might come to grips with the grace and mercy that God offers. Bill C4 doesn't want that. They want the world to think that you're a ghoul, that, that you're into hooking up electrical cords to people and zapping them. That you're a killjoy. That you're like the, the, the prudish Victorian era nun who doesn't want anybody talking about sex, doesn't want anybody enjoying pleasure, doesn't want anybody living out God's creational plans. That's like we're all supposed to be, we're all supposed to hate sex, not talk about sex, not participate in sex, and just rob ourselves of all the pleasures of life. That's the ideology behind Bill C4, that, that you're a bunch of prudes, that you're anti-pleasure. And it would also have, want the population to think that you're a criminal if you teach otherwise because now it's been criminalized. They bring out the biggest hammer in their toolbox, the criminal code, not a local bylaw, 
not a provincial ordinance. The criminal code is the big hammer in the government's toolbox. And they're going to bring that hammer down you and incarcerate you if you sit down with a person and try to convince them to abide by God's creational norms. Well, actually, to ban the confrontation of sin, think about this, is to ban people from the opportunities to experience mercy and grace. Do we understand that? To ban people from being confronted for sin is to ban them the opportunity from experiencing the amazing forgiveness of God, which is what he offers to all of us because we're all sinners by nature. Some people sin a lot sexually. Some people sin a lot in the way they speak about others. I mean, anger issues, murderous thoughts, whatever it might be. Who among us hasn't sinned? I mean, I, I think there would be few among us that haven't sinned sexually, lusted, perhaps had affairs, adulterous relationships, fornicated, committed homosexual acts, viewed pornography, undressed someone in our minds. That's why grace is so amazing and mercy is so sweet because someone confronted us of our, for our sin. But if we're told, we, we can't talk about that. We're not, we're not allowed to confront sin. That's mean, that's ghoulish, that's criminal. Then it bans people from receiving grace and mercy. Now we need to understand, we don't, we don't torture people into obedience. <laughs> we're not bending people's arms behind their backs. Jesus didn't throw people against the wall and gut punch them until they stopped committing adultery. <laughs> we don't do that. We debate, we persuade, we preach, we instruct. But you know what? Liars are always afraid of truth. We fight with our words, but they want to silence us. Because they know truth is convicting. Truth is persuasive. And when truth is preached enough, lies are exposed for what they are. Deathly, disease-ridden, anti-human. We don't torture people into obedience. We persuade, we debate, we preach, we instruct. Now, we do believe that God punishes sin. He does the punishing. We don't have to do that. God punishes sin. But when we preach then from human to human, from preacher to audience, from parent to child, from therapist to client, we do not preach to condemn. We're condemned already. We don't ever, ever, ever want you to leave here feeling that we preach to condemn you. We preach to convict you so that you might find hope and healing from your sin and experience the grace and amazing mercy of God. But Bill C. Ford would want to ban all of that, put a stop to all of that. Now, we understand that it is in the best interest of a nation state to have laws that regulate human behavior so long as they are based on and founded upon God's law. So it is in the best interest of a state to say, yeah, we're not permitting this kind of behavior. We're not, we're not permitting that kind of behavior. And we will punish you, Romans 13, if you transgress. But when it comes to the ministry of God's people, the ministry of the prophet, the apostle, the, the, the preacher, the Messiah himself, they don't force people to abandon their sinful lifestyles, but they do regularly confront sin. Let me give you some biblical examples of this. The confrontation of sin 
mixed with grace. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus addresses sexual sin there. Sexual immorality, which sort of captures all sorts of sexual sins that violate the marital covenant. And an inappropriately solemnified marriage that could actually make a person an adulterer. Jesus speaks to these issues. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, well, I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, how about with your mind? So Jesus adds to this. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus addresses the heart, not just the actions, but he addresses the heart, the mind. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, this is another example. I could give you many. I'll just give you a few. Paul says to the church, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So in 1 Corinthians 5, they had this problem in the church where this guy was shacking up, I think it was his stepmother or mother-in-law, and the church was just like, eh, we're not going to deal with it. Judge not lest ye be judged was probably their motto. Paul's like, guys, this is a problem. If someone claims to be a Christian, they're actually held to biblical standards. And you go through Matthew 18, you confront, they don't listen. You confront them again, they don't listen. There's something called excommunication. I know it sounds medieval, but it's biblical. You break fellowship. You don't break fellowship for purposes of revenge. You break fellowship so that they can see what their relationship with God is like. And the ultimate goal of that is to aim for repentance and restitution and reconciliation. So throughout the Bible, there are many such instances where biblical figures address sexual immorality and at the same time are very gracious to people that are repentant. Remember the woman at the well? She had five husbands and then she was shacking up with somebody. Jesus doesn't come in with a whip. He comes in, he has a conversation, he addresses the sin, and he calls her to new life. That's grace. Mary Magdalene, the woman that had all kinds of demons cast out of her. History tells us she was probably a prostitute. She eventually ended up in Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So God is not, the, go, the gospel is not, you know, we're going to wag our finger, finger, tell you what's wrong, and then you're going to sit in the back for the rest of your life perpetually in shame. That's not the gospel. That's not what we're about. But in, in order for there to be grace and mercy, there has to be repentance. And in order for there to be repentance, there has to be truth. And truth exposes sin and righteousness. So this is why it is so sad that Bill C4 tries to stop us at that first step. Because then it hinders repentance. And if it hinders repentance, it robs people of the opportunity to experience grace and mercy. When we hear people repenting, when we repent, we pour on the grace, we pour on the love, we pour on the mercy, we pour on the restoration. We're the church of the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth chance because that's the gospel. And we've all experienced that, that 70 times seven forgiveness of God for our sins. 
So we're not casting stones. People are like, stop casting stones. We're not casting stones, folks. We're warning you of a rock slide. We're trying to take you to a place of safety. This is the ministry of the faithful Christian preacher, teacher, parent. The Bible preaches against sin. It calls for discipline. It warns us of God's pending judgment. So must we. So when you say, you know what? If anybody preaches that heterosexuality is the preferred norm, which actually corresponds to your sex assigned at birth, not only are there a lot of lies in that, but to threaten to imprison you for that is to threaten to imprison the Bible. To push the God of the Bible out of culture and civilization. So how do you do that? You mythologize it. You mythologize it. And this is a tactic from the devil himself. So what then is God's plan? Well, if you read scripture, it's clear that heterosexuality is God's sole plan for all of humanity. Heterosexuality in terms of your identity and in terms of your sexual expression. This is clear from the opening chapters of the Bible to the end. God made us male and female, and the two come together as one. So your sex is biological. But more importantly, it's creational. It's objective. It's unchangeable. There's nothing mythological or stereotypical about that. Nothing at all. There's several passages of the Bible that present men as men and women as women and kind of carry on what we read in Genesis 1 throughout the rest of the Bible. Speaking of dress, for example, in Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. When you see the word abomination, that, that's a pretty heavy word, by the way. This is in a minor transgression. Now, this is an interesting passage because against the backdrop of the culture within which it was written, there were Canaanite religions, apparently, and Assyrian religions that would practice transvestitism as part of their cultic practices. And it, it could be that God was warning the Israelites not to participate in those cultic practices. But one thing that's crystal clear about this text, whether that's true or not, is that men shouldn't pretend to be women and women shouldn't pretend to be men. Now, some have tried to actually dismiss this passage. So I, I saw one commentator say, well, no, no, this, this isn't about that. It's about sometimes men who are bigger and were called to war would dress up in women's clothes and hide among the women so they didn't have to do their military service. So this was like sort of chastising men for not performing their military service, but under normal circumstances, it's fine to dress in whatever, as whatever gender you want. Well, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. And even if it was true, it kind of still proves the point that men have certain responsibilities and duties and it's different than women. But regardless of the specific cultural backdrop that the writer here is seeking to address, Men shouldn't pretend to be women, and women shouldn't pretend to be men. And one of the ways that we often discern the differences is through dress. 
This isn't some sort of a women can't wear pants. Because in the ancient times, it was, everyone was more or less wearing what something looked like a dress. And then there was a period of time where men tended to wear pants and women tended to wear dresses. And now we have women's pants and men's pants. So it's not like some sort of a barring or banning on us, locking us into a specific cultural expression of dress at a particular point in time. But it's if you're a guy, look like a guy. Don't confuse people. If you're a girl, make it obvious that you're a girl. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, speaking of sexual acts, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's like, well, that's kind of an important verse. Like, what kind of unrighteousness are we talking about that's so bad that you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Here's the list. Do not be deceived. Why does God warn his people not to be deceived? Because there are deceivers that would have you believe otherwise. So what doesn't he want us to be deceived about? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. These things are outside of acceptable practices for the people of God. They put a person outside of the kingdom of God. They're the markers of an unbeliever, not a believer, not a kingdom citizen. In Romans 1.26, speaking specifically to women, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Well, that's euphemistic. What does he mean by that? Well, read on. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's pretty clear what God is saying here. But Bill C4 says you're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed to try to convince people of that. That's wrong. That's a criminal action. So folks, now, now you know why people want to mythologize the Bible. Because the Bible confronts sin. And if you're sick and tired of being confronted by your sin, then you have to attack the source. And if the source is eternal and has been around for a long time, then you have to mythologize it. You have to reduce people's belief in it. You have to convince people it's just fairy tales. It's just mythological. There's nothing true about it. You see, this is an epistemological battle. It's a knowledge battle. It's a how do we know what's true battle. It's a word battle. The most unloving thing a person can do is to fail to teach people these things, knowing that God will judge all sin. Shame on us if we look at bills like C4 and we're like, oh man, this is a little too much pressure for me. So I'm just not going to say anything. Knowing that by not saying anything, you're putting people at risk of eternal damnation? Really? That God will bar them from his eternal kingdom? This almost sounds so old-fashioned. You know why it sounds so old-fashioned? Because so few people, are, few people are willing to say it. We created a whole culture where this is like weird. Who's this weirdo on stage with a plaid shirt? Who's this hillbilly? 
And yet, if you look back over time, this, these basic principles have been agreed upon by almost every world religion, even outside of biblical Christianity, because they're creational in nature. Bill C4 is about as loving as failing to warn your friend, hey dude, there's a rattlesnake at your foot. Well, I'm just not going to say anything. You might get upset with me for telling him, so I'm just going to let the rattlesnake bite. So here's where we want to go next. We want to talk about what God's plans are. So we've addressed the sin, but you know what? God's plans for human sexuality are actually perfect and beautiful. And what we need to do as a church is do a better job of helping people to understand. When we speak against sexual sin, we're not cosmic killjoys. We're we're not trying to rob you of pleasure. We are preaching a message that will only bless you if you live it out. If you surrender your life to God's plans for your sex and your sexual expression, you will only be blessed. You will never regret it. God's plans are beautiful. (laughs) Creational sexuality isn't one of many options. It is beautiful. Listen to this, folks. I'm going to be blunt with you. This is rated A. God created your sex organs. God did that. God created the orgasm. Not the porn industry. God created the orgasm. Can I hear an amen? Amen. God created the natural attraction that a man would have for a woman and a woman for a man. God created pleasure. He created these things. He's not putting the chocolate bar on the counter and saying, it tastes good, but I don't want you to touch it. He's giving you opportunity to eat as much chocolate as you want. But in the right context, with the right boundaries in place, in marriage, God's not a killjoy. He's not opposed to human sexuality, sexual pleasure, companionship, mystery. This is one of the beautiful things about heterosexual marriage. You're in a covenant you're faithful to one another, and you are different but complementary. You know what I mean by different? You never really understand your wife, guys, do you? So I was like, man, she's a mystery woman 26 years in. But that's a good thing. That's a blessing to me, properly understood. She's not the same as me. Folks, this is why. In Genesis 1, when it says they were naked and unashamed, they were naked and unashamed, there's this self-giving, this vulnerability in biblical marriage that God wants for all of us. As soon as sin comes out, what do they do? Whoops! They throw on the fig leaves. They become protective. She blames him, he blames her. This is what we're trying to undo through the gospel. We don't want the genders to be at each other's throats, men to be at women's throats, women to be at men. We want there to be unity, radical unity between the two. But in a world where people are abused, you'll notice this, little psychology of sin here. The more sexual abuse, the more homosexuality. Why? Because guys, if you're a guy, other guys aren't hard to figure out. If you're a girl, other girls aren't hard to figure out. There's not a lot of vulnerability there. I can figure out a guy in like five minutes, maybe three. Can't figure out my wife. 
But that's the mystery. And God sanctifies me through that. But, but in an effort to throw on another fig leaf, to hide and protect, we see the diminishment of heterosexual marriage, which by the way, according to Ephesians 5, is a reflection of the gospel, Christ and his church. So when you attack marriage, you attack the gospel, you attack the church, you confuse the role of the church, and the whole house of cards collapses. This is why we, we, we need to understand that sexuality is not something that's sort of off in the foot to, footnotes of life. It's fundamental to who we are, to the gospel, to how we interact with other people. Here's what Adam said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's like, dude, how long were you waiting? At last, she's here. It's still day six. <laughs> You've been alive for like two hours. <laughs> and, still, and, you, and yet, innately, he recognized how incomplete he was without a wife. So, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called, woe, a man. Because she was taken out of man. And then we have this notion of every household being distinct. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So it's a new unit with authority within their sphere. And they shall become one flesh, referring to consummation. If you haven't consummated your marriage, you don't have one. And the man and his, woman were, the man and his wife were both na naked and were not ashamed. Why are we told that? Because that's going to be contrasted to what we see in Genesis 3. As soon as they fall into sin, relationships broke with God. The fig leaves go on. She blames him. He blames her. And what the gospel is trying to do is correct all of that. And we have the resources to progressively be sanctified out of that sin, sinful thinking and to redeem Christian marriage. And when we redeem Christian marriage, what we actually do is we're putting the, the gospel on dis display in dramatic form. So again, this is why the devil wants there to be fewer Christian marriages. And if they are Christian marriages, he wants them to be really non-Christian marriages. You know what those are like? Those are marriages where both people say we love Jesus, but we're both exactly the same. Men can do whatever women can do, and women can do whatever men can do. There's no difference. There's no difference in roles. We're all exactly the same. It's like, A, you have to have your head buried very deeply in a hole in the ground to even make that claim, because it's not true. There's things that women can do. My wife can have children. She had five of them. I can wish it all I want. It's not going to happen. My wife is smaller than me. She can work out all she wants. I can still pick her up. She can't pick me up. Now, part of it is COVID weight, I admit. <laughs> but men are designed to protect. We are generally stronger, not just in smell, but in physical strength. <laughs> we're different. Folks, we know we're different, but the world doesn't want that. So we got a lot of churches. We're just going to have we're going to make everything kind of mushy middle. So we're all the same, men and women. We can, do, we can serve in all the same offices. You can be pastors and elders, even though the Bible forbids that for women. You can be pastors and elders because we wouldn't want women to think they're not smart. Well, we know they're smart, guys. 
But God has creational norms. Husbands have responsibilities. Wives have responsibilities. Parents have responsibilities. Children have responsibilities. Men and women have different responsibilities and roles. Why is that a problem for so many? You want to live in a boring world? Get rid of heterosexuality. Get rid of role distinctions. Just make it a free-for-all, a mushy middle. The beauty and glory of creation gets squashed when man decides we're going to make, sorry, people kind decides that they're going to make the rules for themselves. But God's plans are beautiful. Male and female, we're talking about unity here and a complementarian relationship and oneness and different sexuality, but unashamed. Who wouldn't want to live in a world like that? This is a wonderful thing. You know, we, we recently got a car, another car, and when you buy a car, there's always a little um, owner's manual in the glove box. You open it up, <clears throat> go to your engine, flip up the hood, you'll notice there's a reservoir for windshield washer fluid. There's a little cap for your rad fluid. Don't open it when it's hot. There's a spot for oil, transmission fluid, and brake fluid. If you don't know much about cars, you're like, I don't know which goes in what. You open your owner's manual. It says, buy this fluid. This goes in this compartment. And if you follow the manufacturer's instructions, the engineers, you're going to have a car for a long time. But if you say, you know what? I know better. Milk's a little cheaper right now than fuel. So we're going to fill her up with homo milk. And I got a lot of root beer in the fridge, so we're going to pour that in the windshield washer reservoir. You're going to wreck your car because you think you're smarter than the designer. Well, we ain't smarter than the designer. And if God says, look, Aaron, this is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to think. This is what I want you to do. And this is what I don't want you to do. This is what I don't want you to act, and this is what I don't want you to think. You can be guaranteed that our good God has our best interests in mind. And when we deviate from the creator's norms, all there is on the other side of the, the event is destruction and decay and chaos. The world's not getting better as God's rules are thrown out the door. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. So as we consider these things... Let's understand, when it comes to these political issues, politics isn't spiritually neutral. Yeah, you know, if they're going to build roads out of concrete or asphalt, that's a neutral subject. If they're going to change the stop signs to circles that are orange, that's a neutral subject. Who cares? But human sexuality isn't a neutral subject, and the basis of the truth of heterosexuality isn't a neutral subject. So we need, as the... As the political establishment gets increasingly theological and religious, we need to speak truth back. It's our job to offer instruction on these subjects. So if you're a parent, please, please, please do the future generation a favor by being unambiguous about these things. Don't assume the youth pastor is going to teach it or they'll, they'll pick it up sometime in a sermon. Tell your kids the truth. No euphemisms. Don't be like, you know, the 1960s dad. Son comes to him, Dad, you know, birds and the bees, tell me about it. Well, well, there's a baseball glove and there's a baseball bat. You sort of got to bat the ball into the glove. And 
You'll figure it out. If you don't tell your kids the truth, someone's going to tell them lies. So have these conversations with your kids. Make sure that you're driven primarily by the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Compared to him, we are worms. So we're not just concerned about protecting ourselves. We want to protect the holiness of God and trust in his plans. And finally, because we have been freed from so many of our sins by the gospel, let's not rob hurting people, confused people, people who've been lied to from the opportunity to hear the full truth, nothing, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If we sang honestly today, and we meant it, you'll remember that we sang this line, there's freedom in his name. You believe that? Or are we just singing along because the beat was kind of cool? There's freedom in his name. We're not trying to destroy life. We're trying to give life and life abundantly. And the giver of life gives freedom and liberty when we follow his plans and patterns for our lives. So let's be faithful to the proclamation of the whole gospel, to the honor and glory of God and the benefit of the nations. Thank you.